Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. It uh, was a joy this morning. We, we had our Sunday school meeting for the first time in months, and that was wonderful. Yeah, that deserves a round of applause. I, uh, th- we finished out the adults class here a little bit early, so I went up to my office upstairs, and it's right across the, the hall from the two Sunday school classrooms, and I just heard all these voices chatting on the other side of the, the doors, and that was just real joyful. So very thankful for that couple of announcements as we get underway here. Uh, first is uh, just COVID-related. Uh, you'll notice uh, Kevin and Kathy Coffin aren't here, so they're, they're isolating because of a potential exposure. Dean Bartlett isn't here, um, so unfortunately he was stuck down at the, the job site this weekend because there was some cases um, in that orbit. So uh, be praying for uh, him. He's Beth tells me he's a little stir crazy, so, and Beth is managing with Adam this weekend, so pray for her as well. Let's see, so that's COVID. Um, I'm sure you saw the sign on the door in the way in, new order from the governor this week. Um, I had uh, quite a long conversation with the deacons about that yesterday, so we are asking that you wear a mask uh, during the service, uh, per the governor's order. Uh, we're, uh, in talking to, to each of the deacons, all of us are somewhat wary of government overreach. And so um, we, uh, we've, we've got our hackles up a little bit, but we, we don't think that this order is uh, restraining us from worship. We're not gonna ask any questions if you're not wearing a mask uh, for medical reasons or whatever reason. Um, and uh, we're not gonna turn anyone away. Couple more announcements. Uh, Sharon and Lester Turner. Lester is going to have surgery, uh, heart surgery, uh, triple bypass the day before Thanksgiving, so in just a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, we're providing meals for them. So Donna has a sign up sheet for that. Um, they only want like one soup per week, so for the next three weeks. And then after that, we'll probably do meals every other day as well. Perfect. A soup a week. So there's a sign up sheet for that out back. Uh, and Operation Christmas Child as well? Yes, the boxes are due. If you haven't returned them yet, bring them in next Sunday. Great. Operation Christmas Child boxes due next week. Do we have any boxes left if people want to stuff more? She said two, and I can always fold more. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. So if you, if you have boxes overdue, remember next week. And if you, if you have time and want to do a couple more, that's an option as well. Um, if you have a moment after the service, feel free to peek out uh, in the addition. More progress has been made this week. It's, uh, I'm just having so much fun. Every day this week, I come in and I go up to my office and I say, oh, oh, that's, that's been done now too, and that's done too. So every day, there's, there's more exciting changes, like spot the difference. So um, we, uh, we have a lot of reasons to be thankful as a church in this season, especially as we're approaching the end of the building project. Um, and a lot of people worked very hard on that, and, uh, and the Lord's been very faithful to provide um, in that. So we, we have reason to be thankful. All right, so I'll ask Matt to come up, and uh, Matt's going to open us up in prayer and do our scripture reading. 
Good morning. morning. I saw a funny COVID-related church sign this week that said, Jesus can wash wash away your sins, but you still have to wash your hands. (laughs) I thought it was funny that we have to be reminded to wash our hands, but I digress. So let's open in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for another beautiful day in your creation. We thank you for how many how many blessings you have given this church, your faithfulness. Uh, We thank you that through the blood of your son, Jesus, that we can boldly come before you with prayer and thanksgiving. We pray this morning for our brothers and sisters that are unable to be with us for many reasons and for those impacted by COVID. Father, we just pray that if it is your will, this will end soon and that we can all be together again. We pray for our country that during these tumultuous times that we will be salt and light for you, that we will show the love of Jesus, we will share the good news, that our hope doesn't lie in men and women and elected officials, our hope is in you. We just pray that you will be with Ian this morning as he brings the message and that this time will give you the honor that you so truly deserve. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning's scripture is in Psalm, Psalm 70, if you'd like to follow along. And yet again, I forgot my glasses. That would help, right? I just have to do the adjusting like this now. Like I used to make fun of my parents. So Psalm 70. Hasten, O God, to save me. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May those who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, turn back because of their shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Let's stand together and sing our first hymn, number 225. Come, Christians, join to sing. Come, Christians, join to sing. Rejoice, praise. 
standing and turn to number 393, Breathe On Me, Breath of God. seated. Ask the ushers to come forward at this time, and we'll have our offering for the morning. Just a note again, uh, if you're a visitor here uh, with us this morning, there's no obligation to give. This is for those who are a part of our church family and committed to our mission. Luther, would you pray over the offering? Oh, please, Heavenly Father, we thank all that you were able to arrive. We still pray for those who have not been here or couldn't be here today. We thank you for the tithes that they bring. May we do the most that we can with what we have to bring to your people so they can have and to share all that we have. We thank you, Lord. just as you've all sat down. You can stand together. We're gonna sing Christ our hope in life and death. So you should have the song sheet. If you don't have the song sheet, raise your hand.
give it a shout.
may be seated. Remind me next week, next week to hydrate before the morning service. <laughs> We're going to spend some time <clears throat> in prayer now. I'll, uh, I don't know if we have any prayer slips. I don't see any. Um, you'll note in your pews, we have prayer slips there. So I'll remind you of those. Uh, if you have a prayer request, uh, feel free to write that down uh, during the service, put it in the offering plate, and that way um, I'll have it all written in front of me and I won't forget anyone. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I will open it up now. If anyone has any prayer requests or praises, Donna, I know you spoke to me beforehand. She's got a praise. I have such an awesome praise. God is so good. He's good all the time. Amen. Amen. All Praise God. Amen. <laughs> Other, yeah, Brian. Prayer for our nation. We need your prayer. We need it now. Absolutely. Prayer for our nation. Allison. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So uh, Andrea Littlefield, Allison's sister, as well as Sharon and Lester. Jane. Okay, so Tom Sharkey, and Tom and Jackie, and they, do they have COVID or are they just quarantining? They're quarantining. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
all sorts of hands. I'll start over here. Yeah, Shirley Freeman. She, uh, Shirley Freeman was with us for um, a portion of Sunday school this morning and wasn't feeling well, and so has gone home, so be praying for her. Yes. Okay. Okay, a family in liberty who has COVID. Christina. So for the Barrows family and for Christina's son, Jason, a lot going on there. Nancy. So Nancy says we should be praying for each other uh, in this, this troubled time. I think you're absolutely right. I was thinking yesterday, sort of preparing for, for worship this morning. Um, every Sunday morning, we gather to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I was thinking this week as we were waiting for the election results. On Lord's Day morning, we are going to gather whatever happens, and worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's what we're doing on the basis of the authority of Jesus, who is the King, no matter what happens. Praise God. Donna? Prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. Oh, yes, Kevin and Kathy, because they're 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 um, self isolating right now. Tanya. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, peace in knowing that God's not wringing his hands, as Steve would say. Matt? Just for uh, safety, I'm going to be away next week in New Hampshire for a wedding, which I'm honestly not excited about, but I feel like I should because I'm in the wedding party. <laughs> they're, they're pressing on with it, even though we've dropped so many hints that maybe this isn't the right time. Mm. Okay, safety for Matt and the wedding next weekend that he's in the, in the wedding party. Any other requests or thanksgivings? Fred. 
Yes. So Steve, you, I have a note here from Fred. So I'll, uh, Steve Wadsworth called to let our church know uh, that he is in rehab and learning how to walk again. Uh, he's regained all of his organs working again. And please continue to pray. So uh, I've seen him posting on Facebook all week. So he's, he's, uh, he's back at it. And uh, we're grateful. And it, it sounds like he may be out of the hospital by Thanksgiving, out of rehab by Thanksgiving. So um, that, that's a goal maybe to be praying for. All right, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we come to you because you are the King of Kings. And after this week, um, when the kings of the earth have raged and the names of the kings of the earth have filled our minds, we turn to you this Lord's Day and remember that you are the one true King. We praise you, Father, because you created all things by your power. We praise you because even now Christ the Son is seated at your right hand in glory. And we pray as Jesus taught us that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're acutely aware after this week of our need for a good and a righteous king, a leader who will never fail, and a righteous ruler who will reign forever. And we know that you, Christ, are that king. And we're happy to remember that one day you will return and establish your eternal kingdom of peace forever. As we remember your righteousness, Father, we're, we're made aware of our sinfulness. You've given us your law. You've told us that we we should love and serve you, our God, with every beat of our heart, with every thought in our mind, with every ounce of our strength. You've called us too to love our neighbor as ourselves, selflessly, without a speck of pride or resentment. We confess even this week that we've fallen short of that standard. We haven't loved you perfectly. We haven't loved our neighbor selflessly. We confess now, silently, the, the sins that you, Holy Spirit, are convicting us of. We want to bring it all into the light, Father, as we prepare our hearts to hear your word. And we pray, as Matt read from Psalm 70, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. We are poor and needy, Father. We're, we're lost in sin. We ask that you'd hasten to us, Father. You are our help and our deliverer. Oh Lord, do not delay. We thank you for the forgiveness that you've promised us in Jesus. We thank you for the perfect justification and freedom that we who've believed in him have found in his name. We thank you, Father. We praise you for the good news of Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We come this morning with, uh, with hearts that are uh, heavy and weighed down and confused, Father, with the events of the world and of our country. And we pray, Lord, as, 
as Tanya has exhorted us, we pray that you give us peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding, that uh, you give us, renew in us, Lord, a sense of your sovereignty over the events of all nations. You are not wringing your hands saying what to do, what to do, as much as we may be, and as much as, as, much as the kings of the earth may be, and as much as the, uh, the anchors on cable news may be. Teach us to, uh, to rest in the unringingness of your hands. We pray for each other, Father, that we'd, uh, we'd remain united as a body in this strange time. You'd give us grace for each other uh, in our faults, just as we need grace from each other for our faults. You'd give us a love for one another as we grow in our understanding that uh, Christ, you died for each of us. There's a number of needs in our church family that we want to bring before you, Father. Because we know that prayer is powerful. You've asked us to pray. We, we ask that you'd be over the Barrows family. So much is happening in their lives, in their lives right now. We pray especially for Jason. Pray that your hand would be on his life in power by your spirit, that you draw him to you. Lord, we pray for the family in Liberty that's, uh, that's dealing with the coronavirus. Um, we pray that they would recover quickly, uh, that they would uh, conduct themselves in, in safe ways, Lord, and that this, uh, this wouldn't turn into an outbreak. We pray for the, um, the Sharkies as they're isolating. Pray for their brother with COVID. Uh, pray that he'd recover soon. Um, and pray that uh, you'd uh, sustain them as they isolate. We, we think of all those, Lord, who yeah, even in our own congregation who are not with us because they're self-isolating because of a possible exposure. We think of Dean. Uh, sustain him, Lord, pacing around his hotel room today. Uh, pray that uh, you'd be with him by your spirit. You'd encourage him in your word on this Lord's Day. Pray for Kevin and Kathy who are in a similar boat in the comfort of their own home. Uh, we pray that uh, you'd be with them this morning and bring them back to us soon. Father, we pray for Shirley Freeman. Pray that you'd be with her this morning, sustain her physically, spiritually as well. You'd encourage her. Uh, you'd remind her of the truth that she knows so well about your love for her, your presence with her. And uh, pray that you'd bring her back to us soon. Um, pray that she'd be well enough to be able to gather with us. Father, we pray for Lester Turner as his, uh, the date is approaching for his surgery. Uh, we pray uh, that you'd sustain him until then uh, with, uh, with arteries that are in rough shape. And uh, pray that that surgery would go well, um, that uh, there would be much reason for Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving Day, uh, the day after his surgery, uh, and that uh, he'd be able to be restored to, to full health. Pray that you'd uh, encourage Sharon in this time as... Uh, she cares for Lester. Uh, I know he's been on, on bed rest at least uh, part of this last week. And so we just uh, pray that you'd sustain them, be with them. Pray for Andrea Littlefield, Lord, as we continue to pray for her. Help her to recover physically and, and also that your hand would be on her life spiritually, that your spirit would be at work in drawing her to your son Jesus. We pray for Steve Wadsworth. 
we, we thank you, Lord. We rejoice with him and with his family that he's showing signs of recovery. Uh, what, a, what a clear and powerful answer to prayer. We pray that uh, he'd be able to be home for Thanksgiving and uh, you bring him back with us soon. We miss him. We ask that your hand would be on the events of our country, Father. We know your hand is on the events of our country. Um, so much is troubling and difficult. And yet we know you're in control. And uh, we ask, Lord, that you'd, for us, that you'd give us the ability to, as Matt prayed, to live as salt and light, to live faithful lives uh, in a dark generation. Pray that you'd empower your church. Um, that we'd see revival in our generation. We know that the uh, the darkness that's over much of our nation isn't isn't something that can be remedied by political power, but by spiritual power, by the powerful moving of your spirit. And we pray for that today. We ask that you would bring revival to our nation. We ask that you'd bless the churches of our nation, revive your churches we would be a, a faithful witness that many would turn from the error of their ways and the foolishness of their thinking and to meet the way and the truth and the life which is Jesus. We ask that you would bless um, those who are in power over us. We pray for our president, Father, uh, in the coming months. Uh, we pray for all those who are in government and in positions of leadership that uh, you would guide them and lead them, give them wisdom, biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, that they would lead this nation well and justly, that we'd be able to live peaceful and quiet lives so that your gospel would be able to be spread. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. How do you know what to believe? I spoke with the, a couple weeks ago with the gentleman who delivered the doors for our Sunday school classrooms. I helped him unload. And uh, this is a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, but uh, he asked me what I thought about the virus. And so we, we talked about that for a while. I'm sure many of you are having similar conversations. And his conclusion at the end of the conversation went something like this. I just don't know who to believe anymore. I don't have any answers about the virus solid enough to share with you this morning from the pulpit. I have speculations personally, but this pulpit is not a place to air my personal opinions. And so far I haven't found any specific guidance in God's word on who exactly is right about the virus. I'm sure you're all caught up with the, the latest on the election. That's sort of the news this week. Um, a lot of voices out there with different opinions on exactly what's happened. I'm, I'm glad to personally to live in a country with a legal system that can evaluate these claims and see if there's truth to them. I'm anxious to see how that pans out in the next few months. But in the meantime, there's a ton of voices out there with contradictory claims about 
the election. This week has been a week of extra chaos in 2020, which has already been quite chaotic. Scripture doesn't tell us who's our, who our next president is going to be, nor does it tell us what to believe about the virus. But that doesn't mean that Scripture is irrelevant in a world of chaos. In a world, in a country, in a time when people just don't know what to believe, Scripture is intensely relevant. In a world where people just don't know who to believe, who to trust, we have a sure foundation, a bedrock of truth to stand on in the Word of God. My prayer is that as we gather with the church on Sunday mornings, that this time together in God's Word would be refreshing. We're we're dealing in this time with the gray areas of mankind's opinions and arguments during the week. But when we come to gather with the church on Sunday mornings, what we deal with is the crystal certainty which can only come by hearing God's very words. That's refreshing. It is for me. In our text of Scripture this morning, Jesus addresses the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had blurred the clear truth of God's word, inserting their own traditions to contradict and to dull God's clear commands. Here's Jesus' big idea for our text this morning. Hypocritical worshipers leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. Hypocritical worshipers leave the commandments of God to hold to the traditions of men. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would worship God unhypocritically by holding to his word and his commandments. We're going to begin by reading our passage together, and then we'll pray. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses. Mark chapter 7, the first 13 verses. And I'll be reading here out of the NIV, which is the Bible that's in your pews. Mark 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. 
you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come to your word this morning, you would speak to us. I ask that you'd protect me from error as I teach your word, that you lead us all into your truth. Help us to understand and to believe your word, that we would leave this morning more assured of your love, more confident in your word, and more ready to love, serve, worship, and obey you as we leave from here. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So Jesus' teaching in this passage came, as it often did, in response to an objection from the Pharisees and the scribes. You see that in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And Mark explains why they were so upset in verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, according to the tradition of the elders. The Pharisees, as Mark explains here, were scrupulously concerned with a thousand specific rules and regulations about the washing of hands and of cups and pots. And all of these rules uh, were, were maintained uh, for the, the maintaining of their ritual purity. That's what they were concerned with. And when they saw how careless Jesus' disciples were being, they flipped out. Verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? What we're going to spend our time on this morning is Jesus' response to the Pharisees' conniption. We're going to see that he responded in two ways. In verses 14 through 23, we'll actually look at this next week, Jesus addresses the Pharisees' question head on. And he explains why hand washing isn't the important thing when it comes to spiritual life with God. What matters is the heart. We'll talk about that next week. But before Jesus responded directly to the main thrust of their objection, he responds as we've just read, to a problem with how the Pharisees asked the question. Look at verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? One of the problems here is the way the Pharisees appealed to the authority of the tradition of the elders. 
the Pharisees, of course, held to the written scriptures of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. That was their authority. But on top of that, uh, they had this oral tradition that was passed down by the rabbis that functioned as, a, as an authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament. They basically added a new authority on top of scripture. And this oral tradition included a huge number of, of rules and regulations added on top of the Old Testament law. And these rules for hand washing that the Pharisees were throwing out were part of that oral spoken tradition. You can't find them in the Old Testament law. There are some rules about hand washing, but what the Pharisees are asking about here is actually going above and beyond what God commanded in his law. So Jesus responds to this. That's what we're going to look at today. How did Jesus address the traditions of the Pharisees? Well, he, he reveals them. He reveals the Pharisees as hypocrites, as hypocritical worshipers who leave the commandments of God to hold to the traditions of men. And he's going to make this case in two parts. First, we'll see that he makes a, a historical comparison he shows that the sin of the Pharisees was actually just like Israel's error in the time of the prophet Isaiah. And secondly, he gives a contemporary example. He illustrates vividly how the Pharisees were abandoning the word of God in their exaltation of this tradition. So two parts, historical comparison, contemporary example. We'll look at the historical comparison first. This is in verse six, verses 6 and 7. And he, Jesus, said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Israel, uh, Jesus quoted here from Isaiah chapter 29. And he quotes to prove a similarity between the people of Isaiah's day and the Pharisees. Most of verses 6 and 7 are, are direct quotation from the prophet Isaiah. And the people during uh, Isaiah's day, the rebellious people of the kingdom of Judah, they were hypocritical worshipers. They put on a good show of looking religious, but their hearts were far from God. This is a constant refrain in the prophets about rebellious uh, Israel before the exile. Religious lips, hard hearts. And through the prophet Isaiah, God spoke of these hypocrites as, you see in verse 7, as worshiping in vain. They put on a show of godliness, but their show was not actually pleasing to God. It wasn't actually accepted as worship. It wasn't real worship. They worshiped in vain. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And what's most interesting about Isaiah's words is that the final fruit of this kind of fake worship in that last line was that they taught as doctrines the commandments of men. In Isaiah's day, these fake worshipers didn't really care which teachings were from God or which teachings were from man. And it only makes sense 
If all you care about is sounding religious, you could pass, um, you could pass human commands along as, as God's teachings without batting an eye as long as they make you look religious, right? If you're a fake worshiper, you don't actually care what's God's command and what's man's command. You just care about looking religious. And that's exactly what rebellious Judah did in Isaiah's day. They, they passed off their human teachings as being from God. They sure looked religious following all of their human rules cloaked in the language of religion, but their hearts were far from God. And we're hitting now on the, the big idea for the passage, the main thrust that Jesus is pushing forward. Hypocritical worshipers, fake worshipers, leave the commandments of God to hold to the tradition of men. That's our big idea. Hypocritical worshipers leave the commandments of God to hold to the traditions of men. Hypocritical worshipers are, are religious fakers. They don't actually care about God's word, so they just assume, leave his commandments behind and hold to the tradition of men instead, just as long as they can hold to their religious-looking exterior. That's the problem in Isaiah's day, but the Pharisees, Jesus says, were, failing, were falling into the exact same error. He introduces his quotation from Isaiah by calling the Pharisees and the scribes hypocrites. Hypocrites. Hypocrite is a, is a Greek word, and literally it, it means actor, an actor. Of course, not all actors are dishonest. But the nature of the theater or of uh, you know, television acting or acting in movies is, is that you pretend to be someone you're not. Actors are, by definition, they're pretenders. They're two-faced. They're one person in real life, but then on the stage they look like someone else. That's a hypocrite. That was the Pharisees. They gave lip service to God on the stage of their lives, but behind the curtain their hearts were far from God. And this religious hard-heartedness to God is clearly evidenced by their low regard for God's law and their high regard for tradition. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. The Pharisees were two-faced worshipers. And they had such a high regard for their human traditions that they left behind the clear commands of Almighty God. That's a big claim that Jesus is making here. He's taking down the religious people of his day. But Jesus didn't just leave the Pharisees to, to, uh, uh, to sit with this stinging comparison. He goes on to provide an example, a proof uh, from the teaching of the Pharisees to back up his claim about their hypocrisy. So we'll look now at his contemporary example, verse 9. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. There's some sarcasm here. You have a wonderful way of rejecting the commandment of God. Jesus did not think this was fine. Did, Jesus did not think this was wonderful. He hated that these men were leading his people to abandon God's word. And he, Jesus explains how the Pharisees were doing this. Verse 10. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and 
Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. This is the commandment of God. Jesus is supplying exact quotations from the written law of God in Exodus 20, verse 12, and Exodus 21, verse 17. Honor your father and mother is the, the fifth commandment. I'm sure you've heard it. Belongs to the, the ten commandments, the ten words given to Moses containing the moral law of God. The second quotation, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die, was a, a specific provision under the Mosaic Covenant for enforcing uh, this moral requirement for children to honor their parents. Now, just by way of passing application, we're not bound by the civil and ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic Covenant anymore, uh, so we shouldn't seek to apply the death penalty to children who curse their parents. Uh, even so, the command to honor mother and father is a universal moral principle. According to the law of God, we owe our parents and our grandparents honor and respect. Speaking to Israel on the edge of entering the promised land, God promised his people in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There's something about intergenerational learning and respect that enables a society to flourish in the long run. Sitting and learning from grandpa holds cultures and countries together. A culture that cuts themselves off from the wisdom of their forebears is foolish. Why start from scratch if there's already a recipe that's been perfected for generations? The best pies are the ones that have been perfected across generations. Why reinvent the wheel when Goodyear's been doing it for years? There's treasure to be found in the accumulated wisdom of those who've come before us. Unfortunately, in our society, we're stuck in a, in a kind of adolescent mindset. There's a natural rebellion against parents that happens in adolescence. I think it's natural. Teenage boys start to think that dad is dumb uh, because that's the age they should be looking to build their own life and their own home, independent of their parents. I think there's something natural about that age. A phase of adolescent rebellion serves a purpose, if it's rightly understood as a phase. Unfortunately, it's possible not to grow out of that phase. For the last hundred years or so, um, our American progress has reflected a, a settled determination never to grow out of rebellion against the previous generation. Each generation has found new time-honored wisdom to throw out the window. I think this is especially obvious uh, in the generations after the 1960s. America, in a lot of ways, is a rebel kid, uh, and we need to grow up. But I digress. <laughs> One last thing for all of you parents and grandparents, patting yourselves on the back, saying, yeah, I deserve some respect. I don't get no respect. <laughs> All children are commanded, commanded to honor their parents because God has commanded it. That's their part. Your part is to live wisely and well 
so they have something to honor and respect. Do your part and hold up your end of the bargain. Are you a parent or a grandparent worth honoring, worth emulating? Do you carry yourself among your offspring with character and bearing worth imitating? Do you fear and love and obey God like you want your kids to? These are questions worth considering. Back to our text. Verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Here's the kicker, verse 11. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. There were no 401ks in the first century, and there were no retirement villages or nursing homes. Harbor Hill hadn't been built yet, and the Social Security Administration hadn't yet been set up. As a retirement-aged individual in the first century, you expected to rely on your adult children to care for you in your old age, just like you cared for them in their young age. Your kids were your 401k, and their home would become your retirement apartment. That's why scripture harps on caring for, uh, for widows, right? Especially childless widows, because they had no other methods of support. Now, of course, it, it still happens this way for, for many people. Um, we have folks in our church who are caretakers for their parents. It's a noble, time-honored, beautiful, and at times extremely difficult way to honor your parents. You may remember that 1 Timothy 5.17 commands that um, elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And that, in that context, it means financial support. The, the word in Greek has that double meaning. Well, watch this, what Jesus is doing here. When Jesus quoted Moses, who said, honor your mother and father, he uses the same word, honor. A faithful son or daughter will honor their parents in old age, even financially, providing for the needs of the ones who provided for theirs in their earliest years. That was the expectation in the first century, and it should be so today. The command of God is clear. Children should honor their parents. The command was clear, but the Pharisees were clever. The Pharisees created a way to weasel out of this responsibility with the word korban in verse 11. Korban means dedicated, literally, dedicated or given to God. And the korban rule was a, was a part of the Pharisees' oral tradition. This is not scripture. The, their oral spoken law that the Jewish rabbis taught, allowed adult children to set aside portions of their financial resources as korban, given to God. And any money that was set aside as korban couldn't be used for any other purpose, including caring for their parents. Any money set aside as korban was dedicated only to the service of God. Now, the idea sounds noble in theory, right? 
setting aside money, which can only be used for the glory of God. That sounds great. But in practice, the rule allowed weaselly kids to wriggle out of their God-commanded responsibility to support their parents. Like a, like a CD from hell, you could put your money in dedicated to God for as long as you wanted so your greedy elderly parents couldn't touch it. And then, whenever you needed it for your own purposes, you could transfer it out and do whatever you wanted with it. That money wasn't dedicated to God. It was dedicated to self and stolen from the pockets of their parents. Korban, which meant dedicated to God, was a hypocritical lie. They used the disguise of dedication to mask their refusal to honor the law of God. Hypocritical worshipers leave the commandments of God to hold to the traditions of men. So what's the point? We don't have too many rabbis wandering around liberty, uh, insisting on the Korban principle. But the deeper principle behind Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees transcends that unique moment. The danger that the Pharisees fell into has been a danger for the people of God in all ages. At many times in the history of God's dealings with humankind, God's people have had to fight the tendency to treat human tradition on the level of God's law. Basically, we, we need to watch ourselves that we don't try to hypocritically weasel out of Scripture like the Pharisees did. In all ages, as followers of the one true God, we're called to worship God, not hypocritically, but honestly, holding only to his commands as final and not to the traditions of men. When God's word and human tradition disagree, we don't get to decide whose word stands. We don't get to weasel out of Scripture by inventing our own tradition. Where Scripture and tradition disagree, God's word wins every time. We talked last week on Reformation Sunday about Martin Luther. And Luther's great conundrum was finding himself having to choose between Scripture and tradition. In his study of Scripture, he found that the tradition of the church actually contradicted the biblical gospel. He was forced to choose. Would he choose to follow Scripture or to follow the traditions of men? And Luther chose Scripture. When forced to choose between the commandments of God and the tradition of men, Luther chose the commandments of God. That's what we called last week the doctrine of sola scriptura. It's a Latin word. It means Scripture alone. Scripture alone, God's word alone, is our final authority. And to this day, even in 2020, the doctrine of sola scriptura, which Jesus teaches in this passage, though not by that word, the doctrine of sola scriptura is the watershed issue. It's the central rift between uh, Protestants and Catholics. It's a question of authority. What is our authority in what we believe and how we should live and worship. Protestants say scripture alone is our authority. Now, Catholics believe in the authority of scripture, but they also believe 
that Scripture can only be rightly interpreted by the church. So they have this whole category of authoritative oral tradition which exists parallel with and actually on the same level with Scripture. They've done exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They, they treat the tradition of men as if it's on the same level of authority with the Word of God. And the inevitable result is that the Catholic Church teaches things um, as dogma, as this is it, which are actually unscriptural and even anti-scriptural because their tradition can't be challenged by the Word of God because they put it at the same level. In Jesus' words, they make, they make void the word of God by their tradition that they've handed down, and many such things they do. That's why we're Protestants. The issue of sola scriptura is the most basic reason that we're Protestant. What is our authority? When it comes down to it, who are we going to believe? As Protestants, we say scripture every time. The priority of scripture over tradition as taught by Jesus and applied by the reformers has all kinds of implications. Really in every area of our lives, we should be seeking to, to conform ourselves to the standard of scripture alone, constantly checking ourselves to see if we're in line with what scripture teaches. And then that includes thinking about how we operate as a church. We should be constantly examining scripture and asking if what we believe and how we worship lines up with what's in the book. Sola Scriptura forces us to be biblical in everything we do as a church and everything we do as individual Christians. So I've got, I've got four implications here for us as a church in terms of what Sola Scriptura means for how we operate as a church. There's, there's many more than these, but uh, these are four implications. First, like we've said, sola scriptura is why we're not Catholic. This one's easy. Um, if we believe the Bible's the final authority, even over and above tradition, that makes us Protestant. And it means that we reject a number of Catholic teachings which are not taught in the scriptures. That includes indulgences, purgatory, the immaculate conception of Mary, the veneration of Mary, uh, the celibate pastorate, uh, the practice of calling priests uh, calling pastors priests and calling pastors father, all of this is unscriptural. It's not taught in scripture. Um, the list could go on. Sola scriptura is why we're not Catholic. Sola scriptura is why we don't have bishops. Um, during the English Reformation, certain Protestants in the English Protestant church realized that the Reformation actually hadn't gone far enough. They were searching the scriptures as their final authority and discovered basically that the office of bishop as a higher office than pastor or elder wasn't biblical. It's not, it's not in there. So they, they formed Presbyterian and, and Congregationalist and Baptist churches. Third, sola scriptura is why we're Baptists. The next thing that came along was that some Congregationalists were, again, searching scripture and realized that the baptism of infants is not commanded in Scripture, nor are there any examples in Scripture. So, the Baptist churches were formed. Um, as Baptists, we looked to 
to our Presbyterian and Congregationalist brothers and sisters, many of which are real believers, and we say, you haven't taken the Reformation far enough. If you want to affirm sola scriptura, you cannot perform unbiblical baptisms. Uh, fourthly here and finally, sola scriptura is why we don't require obedience to non-biblical standards. This one's a little bit more nuanced. All the Pharisees cared about was looking godly, not being godly. They were scrupulous in their obedience to non-biblical standards because it made them look good, but they used that obedience to man to avoid real obedience to God. And that kind of Pharisaism never really died. It's still alive today. It's not uncommon to hear stories of people going into so-called churches where they were coldly turned away at the door because they weren't, for example, wearing the right clothes. In order to be welcome there, you'll need to conform to their non-biblical, extra-biblical standards about how to dress and any number of other, um, other standards for how you should live your life. Those standards are not biblical. They're traditions of men. We're not that kind of church. We're not going to try and do better than God. We're not going to try and enforce commands above and beyond what Scripture defines. Our firm stand on the Word of God also has uh, implications for how we live our daily lives as Christians. The Pharisees weaseled out of their obedience to God's commands by substituting in the traditions of men. And this may have given them a temporary sense of relief. It's easy to be tempted to try and get around the clear commands of Scripture in one way or another, especially if they're inconvenient for us personally or threatening to some way that we live our lives. But the reward isn't worth the cost. I began this morning reflecting on the sense that, that people have that they just don't know what to believe. Who's worth listening to? Where can I get the real truth? And the Christian answer is scripture. God has spoken and you can trust his word. But the minute you, you abandon God's word and begin to substitute the authority of your own human tradition, you, you stop having an authority that you can lean on. You abandon the one authority that can hold your weight. Human tradition isn't infallible. It's fallible. Human tradition is riddled with error. Human tradition is contradictory and isn't worth trusting because humans are fallible and contradictory, not always worth trusting. We don't want just another human opinion. That's why um, many liberal churches in the United States are dying. They've abandoned the authority of Scripture and have followed instead the, the authority of passing fads of the culture. Who needs church when it's just another place to hear man's opinions? Substituting the commands of God for the traditions of men might seem convenient, but in the process you lose God's truth. 
that isn't a trade worth making. When you open your Bible, you can hear directly from God. In this book, you will not find the unfounded speculations of biased pundits. In this book, God himself is willing to speak to you and to meet with you personally. The God of the universe, the one who knows the story of humanity from start to finish and has already written the ending, is directly accessible to you in the gift of the scriptures. In the clamor and the confusion of 2020, when we struggle to know what is true and when we, and when we struggle to trust that anyone even wants to tell the truth, we can find a respite from the noise of the world in the word. God has spoken and God does not lie. God has spoken and God is not ill-informed. God has spoken and you can lean your whole weight into the trustworthiness of his word and it will hold you up. When all is said and done, we can lean on the word of God and we will lean on the word of God alone. We may consult, we may consult with the world and with the traditions of man. We may find real help there, but we will only hit bedrock when we stand on the final authority of the word of God. So spend time in the word this week. Get grounded in what God says before you leave the house or before you turn on your phone. So when you're buffeted by the gale force confusion that is bound to hit you, you won't be blown away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for what a gift it is. Forgive our cold, our cold hearts, Lord. Our, our hearts sometimes grow cold to the reality of the scriptures, to the remarkable gift it is that we can hold in our hands your very words. We pray, Father, you ground us in your word. You teach us to avoid adding to scripture, contradicting it with our own traditions, but that we'd hold in all things to your word alone and find their bedrock for our lives in 2020. Ground us in your word this week. Send us with your spirit as we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is number 408. We sang it just a few weeks ago, but I think it's really fitting for this sermon. How firm a foundation. How firm a foundation. The first verse is about uh, God's word, and the, the next three verses are about the truth of the gospel that's in God's word. Thank you.
thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Amen. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.